Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. <clears throat> Today we wrap up the book of Ephesians. I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed preaching through it. Meditating on this precious book has been good for my soul. I hope it has been for yours. Um, verse 21 but that you also may know about my circumstances how I am doing Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So in verse 21 through 22, Paul mentions this beloved brother named Tychicus, whom he had sent to the church in Ephesus to comfort and encourage them, but that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. The reason that they needed comfort and encouragement is because they loved Paul and they were probably worried about him, having heard of his many sufferings. Paul was writing to them, of course, from prison under house arrest in Rome. And that's what he means when he says that you may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. And as it turned out, of course, Paul would never leave prison. He would not be released again. He would stay in prison until the day was beheaded by Nero. Ephesians and Colossians are both letters that are written later in his life and ministry toward the end along with 2 Timothy, which was the last. And in Ephesians 3.1, Paul referred to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was a prisoner of the Roman Empire, literally, but the comfort for Paul was that he was first and foremost a prisoner of Christ. And that's not just true, but it's also a helpful way of thinking about one's sufferings. Because Jesus is the sovereign king of kings who ordains all things, therefore Paul is in prison because Christ sent him there. And that is encouraging. He was a captive of Christ. Paul had belonged to Christ Jesus from the moment of that day on the road to Damascus when he was changed and transformed and redeemed. And he was in prison for the gospel and for Christ, and the gospel that Christ appointed him to preach and to suffer for. And we see no hint of self-pity on Paul's part. On the contrary, he rejoiced in his sufferings, as we see him doing on a number of occasions. In Romans 5, 3-4, he says, And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And in Philippians 1, 29-30, he says to the Christians there in Philippi, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So when Paul heard of their sufferings, he didn't think, oh, no, that's too bad. He said, it's been granted to you to suffer. This is a gift to be thankful for. In Philippians 2.17, he says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, which is a way of describing his own death, 
Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, a passage we're well familiar with, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So he's well content with these things. Persecutions, insults, difficulties. Paul's sufferings actually seem to be a lot harder on the churches than they were on him. They had a lot harder time with it than he did, it would seem. In Ephesians 3.13, he says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart, at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. That's a rather modest mention of his sufferings. He didn't dwell on his difficult circumstances in this letter. When you read through the book, he barely mentions them. He's instead absorbed in the great things of the kingdom of God, and he just jumps right out of the gate in back in Ephesians 1, into the great themes of election and predestination and adoption and redemption and then on into chapter 2, regeneration and the plan for the Jews and the Gentiles and then he starts moving into how should you then walk as a Christian. In uh, Second Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4, he says something similar, trying to help them think of the big picture and see that these sufferings are for their benefit, not to mention his. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Oh, when Paul sends Tychicus to the church in Ephesus to explain to them about his circumstances and to comfort them, how do you suppose Tychicus comforted them? Probably by saying, you know, at the first, Paul's okay. He's alive. He's in good health. He's got freedom and under house arrest. It's a lot better than it could be. It, you know, he's, he can see some people. The word's going forth. And that's probably what he meant by saying that Tychicus would inform them about his circumstances. But more than that, Tychicus probably comforted them in the same way Paul tries to comfort them, by reminding them 
that his suffering for Christ was not an accident. It is the plan of God. It is used for his glory and it is for the good of the elect and for the advancement of the gospel. That is what really comforts God's people in suffering. Merely saying things like, well, Paul's okay for now. That doesn't really comfort people very long. Saying things like, well, his case is is proceeding in the courts and there's some hopeful possibilities would have unwisely centered their hopes in Paul's release and in the human workings of the Roman legal system. And that's not a good place to set your hope. The place to put your hope is in the glory of God and the truth that God uses suffering for the good of His people all the way around. Paul was the one who wrote Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And he believed that. And going back to that Thessalonian passage where Paul said, we kept telling you in advance that we're going to suffer affliction. Why do you suppose he had to keep telling them that? Or why did he think he needed to? Probably because they, like us, have a hard time accepting it, a hard time believing it. We have a tendency to say, yeah, yeah, persecution is is to be expected for Christians and then to be shocked when it actually happens. I talk with some frequency, at least I think I do, in my sermons about this subject and we have conversations about it uh, together and all the looming signs that persecution is coming But I wonder if we would all be shocked if it came in much more severe fashion. If one of us, probably me, since I've got a lot more content online than anyone else, but not necessarily. But if I was indicted for a federal crime of hate speech or domestic terrorism for spreading misinformation, you know, that's terrorism now, according to the Department of Homeland Security spreading misinformation. So we, I think we all know where that could go. For indeed, Paul says, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. The Christians that Paul ministered to, they had a harder time seeing Paul in jail and seeing the sufferings that he experienced. He said he was beaten times without number. He was stoned. He was three times received the 39 lashes from the Jews. But he was always encouraging them. The sufferer was encouraging them that such things were to be expected and such things were for their glory and for the advancement of the gospel. Remember the incident in Acts 21? Paul is headed to Jerusalem and he has already been told by the Holy Spirit that bonds and afflictions await you. And Agabus comes down, Luke here speaking in chapter 21, as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, Luke speaking of himself here included, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. So they were having a harder time of Paul's imprisonment and sufferings than he was. He told the Philippian church in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And he told the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So there was a proportionate comfort given to Paul in, in relation to his sufferings. But if we are afflicted, he says, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So Paul was not in prison, inwardly focused, concerned about himself, miserable in his circumstances and the unjust treatment. He was concerned about the churches. And his concern was that they understand why he's there and that it's good that he's there. And this is good for them and him and for the advancement of the gospel. So he sends Tychicus, a trusted friend and fellow minister, to come and tell the Ephesians how things were going with him. They cared about Paul and they wanted to know. And he cared about them and wanted them to be encouraged and not discouraged. Tychicus was one of a relatively small group of men that Paul could really count on. There was not a surplus. And they were rare, which you can see from Philippians 2, 19-30, where Paul mentions Timothy in that respect, how unique he is, but then also follows it up by mentioning Epaphroditus as well. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. There's, there's no email, there's no texting, there's no phone calls, there's no U.S. Postal Service. You know, you have to, you learn these things by sending a messenger and then they send him back. For I have no one else of kindred spirit, he says, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Wow, that's a pretty depressing indictment of the, the people. No one else 
of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. But you know of his proven worth, speaking of Timothy, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So these are two good men that Paul could count on. It's hard to find them. Paul didn't have an abundance to choose from. But in addition to Timothy and Epaphroditus, there was Tychicus, as well as others. He was a good man, a beloved brother, and a faithful servant. And in addition to sending him to Ephesus, he was also sent to Colossae. Ephesus and Colossae, if you, you look at the ancient maps, are not far apart from one another. Tychicus delivered this epistle to the Ephesians church as well as the epistle to the Colossian church. It was also possible that he was the messenger who took the letter of 2 Timothy from Paul and delivered it to Timothy. Not sure about that, but it's possible. Paul may have sent him to Crete to trade places with Titus for a time. It was either him or Artemis. And that tells you how much Paul trusted him. We see different snippets of information about him in the New Testament. In Acts 20, 2 through 4, Paul is visiting churches. He's on his way to Jerusalem, as I mentioned. And we see several men mentioned as his co-laborers, and Tychicus was one of them. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews... As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. In Colossians 4, Colossians, as you know, I'm sure, is very similar to Ephesians in many ways. As to all my affairs, he says in chapter 4, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow barn servant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Paul mentions this man again in 2 Timothy 4, 9-12. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, 
for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's already sent Tychicus to Ephesus and Colossae to take those letters and deliver them and the report of how Paul was doing. Paul told Titus in chapter 3, verse 12 of that letter, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So whether it was Artemis or him, the idea was they would go there, and once they got there, then Titus would be relieved to come. So Tychicus represents that element or segment of Christian harvest laborers whose work is absolutely essential and indispensable, but men who don't get a lot of attention. They do valuable work, things that cannot be left undone, but they, they're not the sort of men that biographies are generally written about. They don't get a lot of attention. Someone needed to travel from Rome to Ephesus and Colossae and deliver Paul's letters and tell them about his welfare. Now, Paul couldn't send an email. He couldn't make a phone call. He couldn't apparently use anything like a postal service. It had to be delivered in person, and the report had to be delivered in person. Of course, this letter of Ephesians and the letter of Colossians, Scripture, and so it's pretty important. <laughs> That's a pretty important message to carry and to be entrusted with tells you how much Paul trusted this man. There's other Christians that we see in the New Testament whose names we have. We don't know a whole lot about them. They, they just get a mention and a little bit of information, but they are of this class, if you will, of people who uh, constitute the body of Christ in the first century, who do work and perform tasks and carry out necessary duties that need to be done. Uh, Colossians 4, 10 and following, Paul mentions some. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Somebody there at, in prison with Paul at Rome. And also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proven to be an encouragement to me. See, amongst the Jews, there weren't that many. There was those three men that he mentions. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Demas is either there a different Demas than the one mentioned negatively in 2 Timothy, or this was written before Paul was aware of his departure to the world. Don't know how much time elapsed between the writing of Ephesians and Colossians and the writing of 2 Timothy. In Romans 16, there's another list of faithful men and women who all 
make up a part of the ministry of various churches that Paul wrote to and visited and taught. These are people that are not well known. They just get a short mention here or there, cameo appearances. But one thing is clear, the ministry that they do is essential and indispensable. Paul is very clear, is extremely grateful for these people. He could not do it all. Paul was exceedingly important. We all know that. But Paul was not the church. He was one member of the body of Christ. As pastor of New Hope Baptist Church, I'm not the church. I'm not New Hope Baptist Church. I'm one member here. And it takes a body to be a body. So Romans 16 uh, starting in verse 1, I commend you to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, who is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Know a bit more about Priscilla and Aquila than these others, because they're mentioned elsewhere. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apollos, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodion, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobos, Hermos, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Eulia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. All this long list of people. Now, when you count them up, it's not a multitude by any means, but there's a number of people listed there. You think about the various churches that there are. There are people like this. There are people like this uh, today in churches. A few verses down in, in verses 21 through 23, Paul mentions... Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Tertius is what they call an amanuensis. He's the one who wrote the letter of Romans, Paul dictating it to him. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Cortus, the brother. So this is the body of Christ, part of them in the first century. One body, many parts. 
and every part needed. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And it's the same today. Every believer in every church has a role to play. Every believer in every church ministers in some way. There's two extremes to avoid. On the one hand, we're warned against thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think as far as our individual place in the body of Christ. Romans 12, 3-5, Paul warns against that extreme. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. But it's also true that we should not devalue our own ministry role. That's the other extreme. If we think of ourselves as the smallest and most insignificant member of the body of Christ, well, we are still a member and there's no part of the body that is useless. Paul closes the letter the same way that he usually does, with a benediction. Verse 23 and 24. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. What does it mean when you say to Christians who are already reconciled with God, who already are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love, joy, peace? What does it mean when you say to them, peace be to the brethren? It has to do with that experiential enjoyment of it, of peace. Because even though we are reconciled with God and have peace with Him, we can quarrel with each other, can't we? Even though we trust God, we can become quite worried and fretful about things, can't we? Lacking in peace. Paul knows that, and so he puts a prayer for their peace in the form of an implied imperative. Peace be to the brethren. Be is supplied there by the translators. It's not in the original. There's no verb there. This is in line with that original benediction that was given by God to Aaron and his sons, the priests, to say to Israel, the end there of Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So, peace is the benediction. This is true for us as well. Peace be to you, New Hope Baptist Church. He adds, and love. He prayed, you remember in Ephesians 3, that we would be able to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love which surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. May this be the case for you, New Hope Baptist Church, to know peace and love. Peace be to you. Love be with you. With faith. 
May you be strengthened in faith. May you believe God more and more. May you believe what His Word says. May you trust His promises. Trusting fully in Christ for salvation and righteousness. Or as Paul said to the church in Rome, it kind of brings it all together. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He then says, From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, love and peace. God is love. Love is from God. Love be to you. Love be with you. It's got to come from God. Peace is from God. He is the God of peace. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Faith, of course, is a gift of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting shadow. At the end of Romans 11, Paul says, Or who has first given to him that it should be repaid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And they're also from Christ, these things, love and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about the Holy Spirit? Why is He not mentioned? Why do benedictions rarely mention the Holy Spirit? Well, Jonathan Edwards had a view that I like. He said that the Holy Spirit is the love and is the peace. He is the grace and mercy from the Father and from the Son that proceeds from the Father and from the Son. He is the embodiment of every good thing from God, and He is the way that God bestows such wonderful things upon us. Romans 5 talks about the love of God shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Grace is offered freely and indiscriminately through Christ to the world, but it only resides in those who love the Lord Jesus, those who have been born again. And note that those who love Christ love Him with an incorruptible love. Since the love that we bear to the Savior is from God, and God's love is incorruptible, it never dies, therefore, it is that very same love that's in us. And the love that we as believers have for God is an incorruptible love. It will never die. I really like that line from the hymn, O, o Sacred Head Now Wounded, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to Thee. That is a prayer that the Lord always grants. The love of God in His elect will never fail and never die. It is incorruptible. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that's an encouraging word with which to finish an encouraging book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this book that you have decided should be in the New Testament. You know, we're thankful for the time that we've been able to spend in it. Thankful that you gave me health and life and breath to complete it. I thank you for the 
uh, the wisdom, the instruction, the light, the truth, the encouragement. We pray that uh, it would remain with us and with our feeble memories, that you would help us to retain the things that we have learned and considered. And we pray this for the sake of your name and your glory. Amen.